little more than um, six weeks ago, we uh, began Lent by worshiping together in this room as we um, celebrated Ash Wednesday together. Uh, and that night, if you were here or if you had a chance to listen to it after the fact, we, um, we began the Lenten season really seeking to um, contemplate these different pictures of sin and salvation that we find in Scripture. Uh, and I said that night that my hope in, in doing this together during the Lenten season would be that uh, it would really help inform uh, both our repentance and our joy. Uh, that we would see even more clearly as we look at these different pictures of sin and salvation, we would see our, our need for salvation and that that in turn would help us to enter into Good Friday and Easter Sunday uh, really feeling even more the, the sting of the death of Jesus and the joy and the triumph of his victory uh, on Easter Sunday. So now that that weekend is here, I don't know what uh, these last 40 days or so of Lent have, have looked like for you, uh, but that continues to be my prayer for us tonight and into these next couple days, um, that our repentance uh, and that our joy would be more informed, uh, that it would also be uh, more deeply rooted, that it would be uh, more meaningful and more compelling, both to us in our own lives and to others, uh, as, as that grace of God works through us. And so tonight we're going to begin to look at one more picture of sin and salvation that we'll pick up again on Sunday as we close out the series. We're going to look at this picture of death and life. So I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along with me uh, if you're using a black hardcover Bible that are uh, under the seats near you. Uh, that's page 976. Uh, listen now with open ears to this book that we love. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for us. Lord Jesus, you who forsook no one, but was forsaken by the closest of friends, and who committed no crime, yet was sentenced to a criminal's death, we enter your presence tonight with awe and with adoration. On this day, centuries ago, you could have saved your life, but you refused to betray the purpose for which you had been born. You had come into the world to love God and neighbor as yourself, and when that love required you to shoulder a cross, you summoned the strength to bear it. Tonight, O Christ, as we sing and pray about the cross, teach us its meaning once again and help us to take up our cross and to follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as we both mourn and, and rejoice in the death of Jesus tonight, we remember that it really is our own death that required his. Uh, in contrast to popular views that people are, are generally good uh, or that people are morally neutral and can choose for themselves to be good or to be bad, uh, in contrast to views that, that, that would propose people just make mistakes and need second or third chances, or views that say God helps the man who helps himself. Or views that say uh, we do our best and God does the rest. In contrast to all of that, the cross 
where Jesus bled and died contends what the Apostle Paul writes here in this letter, that we were dead, that we were enslaved, that we were condemned. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, we've considered that idea that we are condemned and need justification. We've considered that idea that we are enslaved and need redemption. Tonight, as we contemplate Christ's death, we're going to consider our own state of death and our own need for resurrection. Verse 1 says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And those two words um, Paul uses very specifically there, trespasses and sins, uh, they point to both uh, the active and the passive ways that we have embodied this condition, this, this state of death. Trespasses are, are false steps. Uh, they are wavering off of the, the right path. It's really more the, the active aspect of wrongdoing. And this word carries a, a stronger connotation of commission, right? Doing the things that we are not supposed to do. Sins, the other word Paul uses there, that's a missing of the mark or, or falling short of, of some standard. And that carries a stronger sense of omission when we neglect to do the things that we are called to do. And so left to ourselves, our lives filled with both trespasses and sins are in a state of spiritual death. And here's a way to think about that. If, if life, if life at its core is communion with the God who created us for himself, if that's life, then death is alienation uh, and separation from that God. It is being at enmity with God. And so we find ourselves in the state of death devoid of the life that we are meant to experience as those who were created in God's image. As this text says, we, we embody this death both actively and passively. We, we are both rebels and failures. And so I wanted to ask you tonight to consider this. Where have you perceived that in your life over these past 40 days of Lent? If you're not a Christian and you're considering these things, where, where have you felt maybe somewhere in your mind uh, a sense of this kind of death, rebellion against God or, or just failure? If you are a Christian, where have you felt the, the remnants of death? Personally, I, I've seen it both in these 40 days, in both rebellion and failure. Uh, I've seen it in my rebellion as I wrestle with the appeal of sins like pride uh, and sins like lust that I wish were dead in my life, but, but find ways to, or at least seek out ways to express themselves. I've also seen my failure uh, in, in all the different hats that I wear as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor, uh, as one called to serve those in need. And so in light of Ephesians 2, it doesn't seem honest, uh, it doesn't seem sufficient to call those growth areas uh, or to call those you know, areas for improvement or whatever other euphemism we might be tempted to, to put on that. It seems far more accurate and consistent to call these things what they are. They are remnants of death. And we know as we read passages like this one in Ephesians 2, we are not merely uh, weak and wounded and broken people. We are all of those things. We are weak and wounded and broken. But more than that, we are dead. And our condition is really that bad, that desperate. We rebel against God, we fail to hit the mark, and it results in this spiritual death. And in that spiritual death, every, uh, every facet, every aspect of who we are is affected by that. That death permeates every part of our lives. And it leaves us 
left to ourselves completely helpless to change that state. Right? After all, dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't make themselves alive again. Dead people really can't do anything but stay dead. Even after experiencing uh, Jesus' radical transforming work in his life, experiencing Jesus' salvation, the Apostle Paul perceives this death at work in him. He perceives that old nature warring against him. And in another one of his letters, he cries out in desperation. He says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? That is the question that we are seeking to answer on Good Friday and Easter. Who will save me from this body of death? And we read it in verse four. But God. But God. If you were able to come, and I know many of you were out today to participate in um, some of the worship, the contemplative and reflective worship we had here, uh, one of the stations we had, station number five, was actually back in the corner of the room, uh, had a number of hinges uh, and it just gave you an opportunity to look or, or even hold them in your hand and see what a hinge was and what it does. Uh, a hinge is a point on which something turns. And this but God, those two words in Ephesians chapter 2, they are the ultimate turning point in the story of God. And in turn, the, the story of our lives. But God is the hinge that turns, as we've seen throughout all of these different pictures of sin and salvation, but God is the hinge that turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that turns condemnation into justification, that turns pollution into sanctification, enmity to reconciliation. It's the hinge that turns orphans into children and, and slaves into sons. And it is also the hinge that turns death into life. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the way that God does this, the way that he makes us alive, is by entering into death himself. Because dead people can't help themselves, God's the one that must deliver. God's the one that must save. And so somehow, in some way, the God who always was, the one through whom and for whom everything that exists has been created, must, as the author of Hebrews says, enter into the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And we remember tonight that Jesus entered into the humiliation and the suffering of death. And think about how scandalous and how just wrong that is. The one who bestows dignity on all those he creates in his image is robbed of every vestige of his own. The author of life gives himself over to death in order to rescue us from our death. And even the way in which Jesus was killed is the ultimate display of humanity's state and condition of death. As Frederick Buechner points out, quote, two of the noblest pillars of the ancient world, Roman law and Jewish piety, together supported the necessity of putting Jesus Christ to death in a manner that even for its day was peculiarly loathsome. The cross stands, Buechner says, for the tragic folly of human beings not just at their worst, but at their best. So I don't know if you caught that. The cross wasn't just humanity at our worst. It's humanity at our best. The Jews, thinking that they were piously defending the nature and character of God by killing a blasphemer, put God in the flesh to death. 
And the Romans, exercising law in order to maintain peace in their lands, put to death the only one that could truly bring peace. And they conspired together, these these two groups of people that did not like each other at all and did not get along at all, conspired together to to put to death the Son of God. And they thought that they were doing the right thing. They thought they were doing the right thing. And so do we, right? We mean well. We mean well. But even at our best, we reek of death. And left to ourselves, there is this condemnation and wrath from which we need vindication. There's this slavery from which we need redemption. And there's death from which we need life. So we remember tonight in the death of Jesus, not only will he rise from the dead, but we ourselves need resurrection. And what I would say to you, friends, tonight is it's coming. It's coming. On Sunday morning, we will be back in this room and we will gather together and we will lift our voices together and we will proclaim not only a crucified Savior, but the risen Son of God. But tonight and tomorrow, we sit in this really awkward place in between the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And it reminds us that because of sin... Life cannot gently and smoothly progress into eternal communion with God. We can't just go from life gently and smoothly into eternal communion with God. Because sin is death, life must go violently through death and into resurrection on the other side. And Jesus has gone there first so that we ourselves might follow. But we must first come to terms with this state of death so that we might repent and believe and then be raised to life. And so tonight, you, you need not pretend that you don't know the rest of the story. Uh, you need not attempt to live your life tonight and, and tomorrow and into Sunday morning only in light of half of God's redemptive work. But at the same time, I would implore you, don't rush past the death of Jesus and into his resurrection so fast that you minimize or miss really the horror of our condition apart from Christ. Sit in this awkward place for these next 36 hours or so. Because what I, what I promise you will happen if you do, it will make that work of Christ that much sweeter, uh, that much more beautiful, that much more necessary in your eyes. William uh, Cooper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, says it this way, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So by our rebellion, by our failure, we were dead. And for life to come, God himself in the person of Christ had to give himself over to death that death itself might die and that real life, this communion with God might be restored. And on this cross, Christ became sin for us. Christ took the curse that was ours upon himself. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. He paid the debt that we cannot repay. He upholds the infinite holiness of God and the infinite love of God in the only possible way those two attributes of God could could exist together. So as you look to the cross, may you see in it tonight the death that was rightfully yours and rightfully mine. And in whatever ways you continue to embody that death, in your trespasses, in your sins, May you tonight perceive this mercy, this love, this grace, this kindness of God, the one who entered into death himself, that we might have life in his name. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we confess 
our desperate need for you. We think that we are doing our best and we are doing our best and our best is still what leads to your crucifixion. Jesus, help us in our place of need. And for those of us who have looked upon you and put our faith in you, we rejoice that you deliver us from death. Deliver us from the remnants of it that that persist and remain in our lives. For those here tonight who maybe are just considering these things for the first time, I pray that, that, that all of us together would not be afraid to call sin what it is, to call death, death. And that that would make Jesus, your saving work on our behalf, that much more worthwhile, that much more meaningful, that much more beautiful. In these next 36 hours, would you meet us? Would you help us to see that life cannot go because of sin directly into communion with you forever, that it has to go violently through death? Jesus, you have gone through that violent death. May we follow you into it and out the other side. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.